0: 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we'll be reading all the way through to verse 16. It's a long section of text. And of course, 1 Timothy 5 exists in the context of 1 Timothy's chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. So we'll be kind of splitting our time tonight between the argument of 1 Timothy and how that has anything to do with chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. And that's just because, you know, as you're reading your Bibles uh, on your own and in your, in your studies and as you even listen to sermons being preached, uh, one of the things I would like you to develop a feel for as a, as a listener, as a hearer of God's Word, is to always hear it in its context, uh, particularly how the gospel relates to very practical application like what we're going to look at tonight in First Timothy chapter 5. So I'll be reading. uh, This is from the uh, one author, one commentator's translation. Um, I do that because I've been liking his translations through 1 Timothy. And uh, so if yours is different than mine, it's because unless you have this author's commentary, you probably don't have the same translation. So um, I'll be reading from uh, beginning in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers and younger women, as sisters with absolute purity. Give a proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God. And continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even yet while she lives. The people give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list if widows of, be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60. She has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds, as such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves, because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get, if they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things that they ought not to, so I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the, the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan." If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 5, at least the first chunk of it. And at this point in Timothy's, uh, the letter to Timothy that Paul is writing, Paul is turning himself away from broad argumentation about false teachers and how Timothy ought to live. And now he's getting really down into the nitty-gritty. And this letter, especially this section, it feels a lot like reading instructions that were meant for someone else. And so we have to really understand, Paul is not writing instructions to the 21st century church about how they ought to care for widows. Or that they are to only care for widows, for example. We're reading Paul's Mail to Timothy, which is to inform, obviously, how we conduct ourselves in in the church today. So we're going to be doing a little bit of trying to understand what is the thing going on in Timothy's context that Paul's addressing, and how might we apply that to our lives today as Christians. So uh, I mentioned at first, we have to follow the big picture argument. Um, But uh, before we get into the argument of why it's important to care for widows, I want you to consider a scenario with me and uh, so just go with me in your mind to 2 in the morning. You hear a knock on your front door, you're tired, hopefully you've been sleeping at 2 in the morning. I know some of you have weird sleeping habits so hopefully you've been asleep. You go to the front door to see what's going on, you open the door and there's someone at your front door and they're in need of help, right? or they're telling you they're in need of help. Would you let them into your house and would you take care of them? Now the question you should immediately be asking or immediately be wanting to know is who is this person that's at my front door? Because depending on who the person is, your answer should probably differ or would probably differ. For instance, if at 2 in the morning I'm, I'm dead asleep and my brother shows up to my front door and says, I need help. Well, I know him. I have an affiliation with him. I have a responsibility towards him. And thus, I would be much more inclined to let him in, no questions asked, we'll figure it out on the back end, than if someone who I've never seen, never met, never heard from, and don't know who they are or what their intentions are, to just to let them into my house. And if you're honest with yourself, that would be the same kind of, Filtration process you would go through about whether you're going to help this person or not help this person who's just shown up saying they are in need. The reason I give that example is not at all what's going on here, but what Paul is doing for Timothy is he's giving him, in some sense, a filtration criteria, and that criteria is based on the fact that in God's good creation, there are some people who we are more responsible for than others. Jesus says, love your neighbor. This is, this is what we are to do as believers. And one of the dangers in taking Jesus' words and just, and removing them from the context is, is that we, we, when you make everyone your neighbor, you really make no one your neighbor. Because if you're responsible for everyone to the same effect and to the same degree, you really make it your job to help nobody at all. That it might be a winsome ideal, right? but that's not gonna solve any real people's problems on the ground. It's, it's like setting out to solve world hunger uh, when you are leaving, let's say, a wife and three children at home who are hungry that you could put food, that you could put food on the table for, or you could make an extra meal and, and give it to someone who you know that needs an extra meal. Now don't go solving world hunger just yet. Take care of the thing that is right in your backyard. Solve that issue. And I would say that's the Christian burden and responsibility for others. the the command to love one another in scripture, the command specifically to love those who are image bearers of God is a command that's attached to real humans, not nice sentiments and ideas. It's, It's very easy to say and to even think that you believe, yes, I should love other people. It's a lot harder for me, for instance, to go home and practically on the ground love my wife by serving her. It's very easy for me to say, God says, love one another. You should serve one another, care for one another. It's a lot harder for me to go on the ground to the person I'm responsible to do that for and do that on the ground. But that's what it is to love someone else. Here's the point of of where I'm coming from. What Paul's telling Timothy here is, okay, he's given him all these gospel truths. Jesus is our mediator. He is our reconciler with God. There's these false teachers who you should rebuke. Timothy, you yourself should be godly. And now he says to Timothy, what, what's one of the aspects of being godly? What's one of the aspects of what the church does in its walking out its faith? It loves those people in its context. Paul doesn't tell Timothy to solve poverty in Ephesus. He doesn't tell Timothy to solve the hunger crisis that's going on. He doesn't tell Timothy to solve the slavery problem, which we'll look at um, in uh, next week in Ephesus. He doesn't tell Timothy to do, to be a social political engine for change. He says, hey Timothy, you have widows in your context. You have people you could care for. Be responsible for those people as an extension of being a faithful minister of the gospel. That You might say, but that's Paul thinking a little too small. But actually, that's quite a weighty responsibility to carry. In fact, if you were to consider let's say, our current ministry context as a church and your current ministry context as a Christian, uh, whether that be your work environment, your living situation, or those who you are blessed by God's providence to know in your life, what God called you to do from this text is not to solve every social ill that society has ever faced, but to love those who God has equipped you to love and providentially caused you to know by his grace. So I want you to go through this text with me with, with something in mind, a, a person in mind, a situation in mind where you can actually walk this thing out like Paul's calling Timothy to walk his situation out. And we'll draw some broader implications from that. So now that you have that in mind, uh, what's the foundation of why we should love other people? Uh, the foundation is not because if we love other people, then God will love us. The, the through line of scripture is clear. We love in response to god's loving of us now paul has already for several chapters laid down this foundation for instance when he when he talks to timothy initially in in chapter one one of the first things that paul talks about in his own personal life uh, this is chapter one uh, verse 13 uh, he says though formerly i was a blasphemer a persecutor an insolent opponent but i received mercy because I had acted ignorant and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, God showed me grace. What did I do with that? Timothy, I passed that grace on to you. I instructed you, in the same faith, protect that faith. And then, uh, the, the other kind of capstone of that is in chapter 3, where he, where he talks about what the church confesses, right? This is chapter 3, verse 14 and following. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. You may know how one ought to conduct himself. Because it is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress for the truth. So the conduct matters for the confession we hold. And then he goes on to this like creedal hymn kind of formula where he says, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed upon in the world, taken up in glory. Timothy, Jesus did all these things to reconcile a lost humanity to God. Think about all the things he's done for us. Think about all the things he's done in your life, Timothy. Now, here's the implications of that. What God has done in the gospel to reconcile you to himself, here's an implication. The people who you see around you who are image bearers of God, who can't fend for themselves, well, God calls you to love them practically on the ground. You see, how we conduct ourselves on the ground in loving people is not divorced from at all what the gospel tells us to do. And loving people is also not the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus did to reconcile us to God. Now we're talking about things the gospel carries momentum towards. The gospel picks up a momentum and bursts it into the lives of people. And so this is what we would call, I've heard it said this way, that it's a gospel entailment. It's not something that is the gospel but we would say it's an immediate consequence of what has happened in the gospel. And so one immediate context uh, in Timothy's case is how he treats the people in his ministry context. That's the first two verses of chapter five. Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as though he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. He's saying this, Timothy, you're you're not ministering to a congregation of the average of the people that you serve. You're actually ministering to individual people in your congregation. So while he's told him in the previous chapter, I want you to preach, teach God's word and encourage them from the text. So his preaching public ministry, there's also an aspect of Timothy's ministry that's going to be one-on-one, life on life over the dinner table in in people's houses. And he's saying so when you're when you're talking to people in those contexts, treat them as though they actually are people who bear faces. They're not a generalized stereotype of the sin that they were committing or the struggle that they're in. If, if, the, if the man is older than you, Timothy, treat him with respect. Exhort him as though he were your father. Similarly, if, uh, if it's a younger man, one who's your age or younger than you, treat that, treat that person as though he were your brother. If it's a woman who is older than you, honor her as though she were your mother. Exhort her from that principle. Treat her like a person who relates to you uniquely. And similarly, if it's a younger woman, treat her as a sister. And particularly in the case of the younger woman, he adds this phrase with absolute purity. And that's probably for obvious reasons. Timothy, who he's already alluded to being a young minister, uh, and then obviously the context of ministering one-on-one in a very intimate setting with younger women, he says, and when you do that, do that in a way that's above reproach. That's kind of in keeping with the whole letter of 1 Timothy. So the point is, your relationship with the person who... God has put in charge of you as a Christian, say the, the pastor's relationship to the church, the elder's relationship to the body, uh, that's one of both intimacy and publicity. So last week we looked at the public aspect of that, the preaching of the word of God, and which I said the Holy Spirit is kind of the one-on-one partner in that hearing process. And this week uh, he's saying, hey Timothy, but you have a responsibility to also know your people and love your people in a one-on-one basis. One of the uh, immediate convictions that that has drawn, obviously, in, in my life and in the life of this church is, is we have a strong conviction that your elders should know the people who they serve. And you, no doubt, if you're a member here, you see that lived out, right? We meet with you, we talk with you, because you're not just a, a Christian who struggles with a sin or a Christian who struggles with sin generally. Uh, you're a person with a face, with a personality that God has called us as pastors to minister to uniquely. So it's important that you see the textual foundation for some of, some of these things. And then, uh, keeping with this, uh, let's say, aspect of specificity that Paul's going after, he's going to zoom into a specific demographic in the church in Ephesus that seems to have uh, either a lot of confusion or a lot of necessary instruction that's, that's required. And that is this ministry of widows or caring for widows, um, Actually, uh, several weeks ago when when Brian preached on the text uh, where we talk about deacons, particularly as he alluded to Acts chapter 6 and the widows in that context, that's probably not very much different, both time-wise and situation-wise, from what's happening here in, in Ephesus. So there are widows in their context, verse 13, who are really in need. And Paul wants Timothy to be able to pay attention to those widows. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And then he's going to spell out a whole bunch of criteria that's going to help Timothy figure out practically in the first century AD Ephesus, what does it mean for a widow to be really in need? So the timeless truth, if you will, of this text is that God calls his people to care for those who can't care for themselves. And widows aren't the only category that that actually applies to. That applies to orphans, uh, maybe in the 21st century context, single mothers. Uh, those who have faced hardship financially or uh, physically with with health or with disaster, Uh, refugees, the church can be called to love those well. But the point is, it's a kind of specific situation in Timothy's context. So give proper recognition to widows who are really in need. And so here's the criteria that Paul gives to Timothy. He says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, that widow's not really a need, right? Because these, the children and grandchildren, should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and their grandparents for this is pleasing to God. So going back to that initial situation I said, if someone shows up at your door at 2 a.m., who should you care for? One of the ways Paul's going Paul's to instruct Timothy is natural family connections is, is one level of security that God has put in place for people to be cared for. Uh, it might come as a sh- surprise to you. In the Bible, um, the idea of a giant societal safety net that catches all people who fall through the cracks is, is, a, is, a, is not quite a biblical idea. The biblical idea is you actually have a personal connection to a person and now you're responsible for that person. So in the case of children, you're responsible for your parents if they can no longer take care of themselves. If they fall upon some hardship or some difficulty, It is the children who are first and foremost the kind of line of defense by God's grace to care for their parents. And Paul describes that as putting their religion into practice. So making their faith real and felt on the ground. So if someone has children, if a widow has children, the the responsibility would fall to the children, not to Timothy and the church. Okay? Because that's pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and is left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. So a widow who's really in need is is a widow who's been left alone, not not just someone with a a dead husband, but also someone who doesn't have children who can care for her, or the children aren't doing that and and they're stubborn and not not taking care of her. And and this widow is also described in some sense as a a faithful Christian. Now it's hard for me, I can't go to all the texts that allude to this, but um, this widow is almost almost like the apostles in in what her responsibilities are. She prays night and day and continues to put her hope in God. Uh, That's like Anna in the temple in Luke's gospel, where uh, she is night and day in the temple praying and interceding, uh, calling God to uh, save the Jewish people, right? So this is a widow who we would say is a devout Christian lady, okay? So not only does she not have children, but also she herself is a devout Christian, but the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives. That's verse 6. And the point is, there's, there's some widows who are believers, Timothy. These are probably true widows, the ones you are responsible for caring for, those in your context. And there are going to be widows who might, who might look for your help, but aren't actually believers, aren't actually Christians, don't really have any tie to you. Um, those the ones who live for pleasure. Don't, don't deal with those widows in the same way you would deal with believing widows who are faithful. Verse 7, give the people these instructions. That, that's qu- not quite clear, by the way, who the people are. It might refer to the deacons from chapter 3 who might be putting this on the ground, right? So Timothy gets the big picture instruction and he works with the deacons to make sure these widows are cared for. See Acts chapter 6. Um, but it's not quite clear. It could also be the church that's kind of coming around these people to help them. So that no one may be open to blame. So give the people, give the church these instructions so that no one, may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, now he's speaking specifically to Timothy's church context, hey, you in Timothy's congregation, if you have relatives, and especially for their own household, so not just extended family, but let's say they have someone in their immediate family, their own household, who they don't care for. Verse 8 ends pretty harshly, right? They have denied the faith, and they are worse than an unbeliever. That's quite a statement, quite a line. This is not salvation by works. This is Paul simply saying, when you confess to be a Christian, your Christian testimony matters. And part of your testimony is how you live your life. If you want to see a similar statement, I mean, you can just flip over to James. uh, In James uh, chapter 1, he says something almost identical. Uh, to this not quite as harsh as Paul James is a little bit more soft when dealing with his people but the the point of what he says is almost exactly the same Uh, James chapter 1 verse 22 but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like but the one who looks, in perfect, uh, looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And the whole context of this in, in James's letter is that there are widows and orphans who are not being cared for. In fact, uh, James makes a direct uh, reference to that in, I should have written this out of my notes, thank you. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So religion, for James, that's pure. You can hear true, real religion is religion that works itself out in the life of the believer. That's exactly what Paul is saying to Timothy. He says, let's say someone professes to be a Christian and they let people in their own household go hungry because they simply don't want to care for them. What can we conclude about that kind of a person? They're at at best making a false profession of faith. They're denying the faith which they profess. And in in that case, they're worse than an unbeliever. They're worse than someone who has not confessed to know Jesus and his love and is living in in discord with that. Imagine someone who says, I know Jesus. I know his love. I know his grace. But I don't want to love or care for anyone else. He's saying that doesn't quite add up, right? That's what he's getting at there. And then verse 9, he's going to continue with some criteria. No widow may be put on this list of widows unless she is over 60 and has been faithful to her husband. The the text literally there says she's been a one-man woman. So uh, you can see 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul says elders must be one-woman men. And here he says the widow who meets the criteria of a faithful godly widow, she is a one-man woman. Uh, it's the exact opposite phrase in Greek. And this widow is not only just faithful to her husband, she has to be of a certain age, over 60, and it is well known for her good deeds. So she, she should be someone who people know, we might say, uh, if you're borrowing terms from Paul's list of elder qualifications, um, she's a, above reproach. She pursues good deeds, uh, she, and she commits herself to these things, right? What are the good deeds that she could commit herself to? Bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So this widow embodies faithful womanhood as a Christian. That corresponds almost exactly with verse, uh, verse five, where the widow who's a true widow is one who's a faithful Christian, right? And so the widow has to meet certain criteria, and the argument goes like this broadly. There is first and foremost, a rung of defense that God has put into creation to care for this widow, her family. Her family, her children and her grandchildren, would be the first line of defense to help her in her hour of need. And then, as he says later in that, that same text, and, and if you, there's anyone in your congregation, Timothy, by the way, who is who has relatives and people in their own household and they're not caring for them, they're worse than an unbeliever because they're supposed to be meeting these needs. Okay? But we've already said the church is the family of God. The healthy church operates in some sense in a familial way. And we would say this is kind of a dual family expression. So you have your immediate family and you have your church family. Uh, and that's not at all some spiritualized nice kind of term. The idea is actually very true, that in, in Timothy's case, if someone is a member of the church and they don't have family to take care of for them, the burden of responsibility falls to the church because the church is their family. And the church is responsible to care for this person who is falling on hard times. So the familial responsibility extends not just to the natural family, but also to the household of God family. And that's because Jesus Christ has unified us all together by his common blood. The gospel informs why we care for someone who has fallen on hard times. And this principle of caring for someone who's fallen on hard times obviously extends to more than just widows. Widows are who Timothy is caring for, but it can obviously extend, depending on your context and situation as a church, to anyone who is in your church who is in need that is truly in need. The question is, do you care for them as a church, as a body? And then uh, we'll kind of finish this off here. In verse uh, 11, uh, he redoubles his efforts to say a widow must be of a certain age, because he's going to turn to some warnings and probably, probably reflecting on some situations that have already taken place in the Ephesian church, he says, "As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list." In fact, you could render that a little bit more harshly. You could say something like this: "What about younger widows? Forget them." Oh. <laughs> so he's basically saying he's basically saying, "Don't don't put younger women on this list." Why? He's going to uh, explain himself here. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they'll want to marry. And you might be saying, Paul is really, really digging himself a hole here. But he's actually acting in a very pastoral way. Because the context he envisions, verse 12, uh, into verse 12 is is a younger woman who wants to be married. When he says their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, He's not talking about ungodly sexual desires. He's talking about natural sexual desires such as marriage. And, he, and, and the context he's envisioning is not that it's wrong for women to want to marry, but he's envisioning a widow who first pledged to never marry again and then become a widow of the church, and then who later has an affection to be married and has to go back on her vow to the church. That's uh, verse 12. Um, they bring judgment upon themselves because they have broken their first pledge so the context is a widow who essentially swears loyalty to the church to be dependent upon the church but let's say loyal to the church as opposed to any man Uh, but then who later let's say meets a man says it's a good thing to want to have children and now she's torn between the oath that she made and and keeping that oath or where her desires and affections are leading her and so what paul's saying is very pastorally timothy don't enroll younger widows on this list because they're going to be probably wanting to marry, and so they should be open to that. So maybe care for them in some other way, but don't care for them in the sense of them being an official widow of the church. Uh, and he says there's another danger for younger widows. Let's say, for example, if they don't have children, uh, they, and they don't really keep themselves busy, they're going to get into all kinds of problems. This is verse 13. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle, and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things that they ought not to do. Uh, we could say this is the sin of gossip, the sin of slandering, the sin of um, laziness. Uh, this woman in verse 13 is basically the inverse of what we say is like the Proverbs 31, a uh, woman who embodies productivity in the household, um, guards her tongue well, is kind of like the, the pinnacle of what, what womanhood looks like in Scripture. Um, and he's saying these widows, uh, these younger widows particularly, are going to be in danger of that kind of thing. So the counsel he gives instead is found in verse 14. So I counsel younger widows to rather marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. This is very, very pastoral advice. It's almost like he's been through a couple of these situations. He knows how this is going to play itself out. He's basically saying, have them be open to marriage, and if they marry, by God's grace, let them raise children and let them manage their homes. That'll keep that'll keep anyone plenty busy. Uh, rearing a household and rearing children is 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 much more than full-time work. And that, that'll keep them very busy. And and then by the time they're old enough, let's say they're widowed again, well, by God's grace, then they'll have children who will be able to care for them. And you, you see how Paul's giving very pastoral advice here to these widows. And then he he gives us kind of like the the situation on the ground, some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. So that the leaving of the oath, the leaving of the first pledge to marriage is in Paul's mind something, something akin to apostasy. Now it's really hard to fill in the blanks of exactly what's going on here, but this person is not just turning away from their oath, but also turning away from the church altogether. So it's uh, probably a young widow, maybe several who've done this, where they initially say we're widows, we want to be cared for by the church, And then when opportunity arises, they give themselves over to all kinds of nonsense and gossip and all the rest and essentially apostatize from the faith. And so Paul says, here's a safeguard against that. Don't enroll younger widows, only enroll older widows who meet certain criteria. So that's very like earthy, personal, on the ground instruction. And then he says, uh, verse 16, he kind of turns back to the congregation. And now we see another piece of the puzzle fitting into place if there's any woman who has a believer, uh, any woman who is a believer who has widows in her care, she, that, wo- that woman, should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church could help those widows who are really in need. So not only do you have widows who are in need, but you also have women in the context of the church in Ephesus who are well enough off financially to care for widows in the church. And, and Paul's not saying hypothetically if this is the case, but is likely just like in verse 15, that this is probably already happening. There's already widows who are taking care, women who are taking care of widows. And Paul's basically saying, let her continue to help them so that the church would be freed up to continue to help those widows who are really in need. So in this case, you have a woman in the church who's operating in a Christian familial relationship with a widow, right? So the burden of responsibility, she has taken it upon herself to care for someone out of her own means. And so while Paul's counsel here is very practical, The practicality of it is what makes it difficult to translate to a 21st century context. Because the life expectancy today is very different than it was in Ephesus. So is 60 really a good number to safeguard? Uh, The socioeconomic situation is very different today than it was in Ephesus. So the question we can rightly ask, I think, is how much of these instructions carry over to us today as, as Christians? And I think the instructions that can carry over are are pretty, pretty clear, at least on a principial level. And the instruction goes something like this. There are those who are in our context as believers, in your life as a Christian, who might be, and maybe are right now, in need. And by God's grace, if he has given you the means to care for them, take it upon yourself to care for them. And use discernment about who you care for. Just like Timothy has to use discernment about which widows to enlist because you have finite resources and even the church has finite resources that it can dispose to care for people. So we should be selective and careful about who it is that we care for, both as a church, as a corporate body, and also as individual Christians. But the point that's non-negotiable is that we do care for those who God has put in our midst to care for, that we are able to. If you're able to care for someone and it's your responsibility to do so, you do it. So the church, first and foremost, cares for its own people, its own family. And then if, by God's grace, it's allowed to, it can extend that generosity and grace outward. So let's pray, and then we can get into discussion. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, which is before us and before our eyes. And Lord, we just uh, pray that you would give us grace to apply this, uh, to understand it, uh, and most importantly, Lord, to live it out. That we would be a people who embodies the truths of your word, and that we would walk by faith, living out the good confession of faith, which we believe by the grace of your Son. I pray this all in your faithful name. Amen.